So last week we started looking at the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote this um, later than he wrote Galatians. Uh, he wrote it to a group of house churches, really, to a church in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a massive city. Ephesus was um, a, a wealthy city. Uh, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, it was a very, very big deal. Um, it's comparatively what you would call today one of the like mega cities in Japan. It was huge for first century. And all these little churches are all over town and uh, they're unified in purpose. Um, and Paul writes this letter to him and he spent a lot of chapter one uh, really kind of setting the stage for theology of what he's going to build on. He talked a little bit about predestination. He talked about uh, uh, God uh, wanting them to be saved and seeking them out to be saved. Uh, but what he's going to get into here in chapter two um, builds off of that, but goes into also what the church is made of. Because the, their church is made of both Gentiles and Jews. Uh, so it's people who were raised Jewish and came to know Christ, but also Gentiles, people who had no Jewish background, uh, who had been raised worshiping a whole host of gods and then came to know Christ. Um, and so their church is, is quite diverse. And so that's what leads into a lot of what Paul is going to say here in chapter 2. Uh, so let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So writing to these people, he's talking about before they were believers, so unbelievers. Uh, he said unbelievers are not just sick people in need of a doctor. Unbelievers are dead people in need of life. He says dead in the trespasses and sins there in verse 1. So he says sin killed them. Sin didn't just passively result in death down the line. Sin actively killed people. In the same way that drinking a bucket of poison kills a person, sinning is the equivalent to drinking a bucket of poison. Uh, and those two words there, trespasses and sins. Uh, Paul uses both of them there. It would, you would think they would mean something different, but really he uses them synonymously. They mean the same thing. They're not two different categories of wrongs that have been committed against God. They're the same type of deal. Uh, they both basically mean to intentionally come up short of God's perfect standard. And so the idea here is uh, intentional actions that have been taken against God and His way of life. So we're dead in our trespasses and sins when we were unbelievers. Verse 2, those trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there once was a time when the people of Ephesus were unbelievers, living in sinful lifestyles. And so Paul then goes on here to describe the sinful lifestyles in brief, which is exactly how our own personal testimonies should be described. Our unbelieving life in brief, general terms, and then the focused emphasis on God's work in us and the transformation afterward. Uh, even You can see it in the book of Acts when Paul would give his own personal testimony. He would very briefly, in general terms, describe what went down before, and then he would go into detail about all that God's done in him since then. And so he says here, in brief, in these couple of verses, the way it was when, we, when people were unbelievers. Uh, unbelievers follow after, he says, they're the course of this world. 
which means living just like so many other people live. You know, the course of this world, copying the lifestyles of other unbelieving people. And that's how unbelievers live. But too often Christians end up copying the lifestyles of unbelievers. And in so doing, spread the influence of sinful activity. You know any believers who copy the lifestyles of unbelievers? Whether in action or deed or in what they say or what they watch. <laughs> and so he's saying this, that's the way unbelievers live. They copy other people's lifestyles. Um, as a believer, we're supposed to strive to following the course of Jesus instead of the course of this world. So I must live the life of a disciple of Christ instead of a disciple of the people of the sinful world's influence. And so he says, unbelievers follow the course of this world. Then secondly, there in that verse, they are following the prince of the power of the air. So unbelievers follow the influence of the enemy, Satan. And the enemy has free reign in the children of disobedience. That is those who intentionally live lives disobeying the direction and purposes of God. So without the Holy Spirit's guiding voice in the heart of a person, one of the main influences that is heard is that of the enemy. To not submit to the power of the Holy Spirit is to submit to the power of a different type of spirit. Uh, verse 3. Uh, he continues talking about the life of the unbeliever. Uh, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so what Paul's saying here is that uh, as unbelievers, we all once lived in the same way as every other unbeliever. Uh, that is, to satisfy whatever sinful whim popped into our head or our heart. So the base desire of the unbeliever is to please themselves in whatever means necessary. But the life of the believer is supposed to be different than that. It's not supposed to be all about uh, satisfying whatever sinful whim pops into our mind. It's supposed to be about pleasing God. So the implication is that the life of the believer is supposed to be the opposite of what he's describing here. So rather than life being selfish and prideful, the life of the believer should be selfless and follow the direction of the Spirit in whatever direction he instructs. But before any of us believe, as Paul writes there, we are by nature children of wrath. What do you think that means? That's a fun phrase. Children of wrath. Children of sin. Deserving of wrath. Exactly right. So because of our deadly sin, we are under the wrath of God, just like every other unbeliever. And so the wrath of God is the earned result of sin. Sin brings death and the wrath of God to everyone alike. And he uses that word children there. That's interesting. The word children, it doesn't refer to something that's passed down from parent to child, as in sin carried over, or even a sin nature passed down from parent to child. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, Paul, the way Paul uses this phrase, children of wrath, he uses that word children of something many times throughout his writings. Uh, he uses it, to describe a particular type of people, uh, almost like a title. And so here he uses the word children to refer to people headed towards the wrath of God because of their own purposeful sinful decisions. But thankfully, that's not how the story ends. So in describing the life of an unbeliever, he only spends two verses. He only spends two verses 
talking about how an unbeliever walked and lived, specifically the people in Ephesus, and in very general terms. But then he talks about the change, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now what's interesting here is that in the Greek, the word God comes immediately after the word but. And that doesn't seem weird to us because we speak English, uh, but that's not the norm in Greek. That's not the way it works. You have the conjunction, but, uh, and then it does, it's not followed by the subject of the sentence. That's not the way it works. The subject of the sentence usually comes later on, sometimes after the verb. Um, and so the f- fact that Paul put God right there makes, uh, he's trying to give the emphasis to the word God. He's taking it out of the traditional order of, of sentence structure uh, in order to put emphasis on God, the one who does the action. Uh, our sinful, wrath-ridden situation seems hopeless, but then God interjects, not leaving us stuck in our hopeless predicament. God and his actions are the focus of this passage, of this little uh, uh, phrase, the, these couple of verses here. Uh, as also God and his actions should be the focus of our own lives and our own interactions. And so what God did, he was rich in mercy. He doled out from his immeasurable stores of mercy on everyone who believes. And that word mercy, you know, not giving something bad to someone because of a desperate need. Or it's really, you know, it's intentional restraint. God had mercy. He intentionally restrained himself from pouring out the wrath that Paul just talked about uh, in the previous verses. And so this immeasurable mercy came to us because of the immeasurable love with which he loved us. Everything about God is immeasurable. We, we can't quantify it. It's so beyond our thinking. And so we have God's loving mercy here. God's loving mercy came to us even when our actions against God necessitated death. Uh, he says there, uh, even when we were dead in our trespass. So we were already dead. We had already been sinning. We had already deserved wrath and death and punishment. But even then, he still came to us and made us alive. We were rightfully dead because of our decisions. But God made us alive just uh, the same way Jesus came back to life. See, we had been marked as dead because of our sin against God. And yet, God still issued mercy, diverting his wrath from us and onto Jesus for us. So this new life that we have now, being brought back to life, is a direct result of God's grace. He says there at the end, by grace you have been saved. He's going to expound on that later on. By grace you have been saved. Uh, And so we receive God's grace. We've been given something that we do not deserve. We're given life, which we do not deserve, because we very much deserve death because of our sin. And so we were raised... Verse 6, we were, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have been raised and we make our residence with Jesus. Our place is in, in, in heaven and our place in heaven has been secured because of Jesus' death and resurrection. God took us from our current state of death and, and, and deserving of wrath and he elevated us far beyond anything possible under our own strength. And he places us in his presence in heaven for all eternity. It's quite a good trade, I would say. Uh, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, 
he might show the immeasurable riches, there's that word again, immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so the immeasurable riches of his grace, they're shown to us uh, by his grace through the gift of salvation. And his grace is immeasurable in the sense that salvation wipes away every sin of every single person who believes. But not only that, uh, it also has the power to do so much more. God's grace is so immense that it is powerful enough to extend beyond every single uh, sin committed by every single person ever committed, even if it's only applied to those who believe. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That God's grace can be applied to all humans who have ever existed, but it's really only applied to those who believe. His grace is that powerful. Jesus' death is that powerful. But such a magnitude is so far beyond the ability for any individual person to count that it simply cannot be measured. So God's grace will be lived out through the life of each person who believes on into eternity. So like we are walking grace displays for everybody. And we need to live that way and act that way and speak that way. But it's not just something we do now. It's something like he says there. Uh, in the coming ages, on into eternity, that will be us forever. A display of God's immeasurable grace. And God's grace is a demonstration of His kindness towards us as a result of His love. His love for us motivates His kindness, resulting in His extended grace, granting us eternity in heaven. And then we come to two verses that you may have heard before at some point or another. Um, they're kind of the crux of the whole story of salvation and kind of the whole book of Ephesians. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So this, those two verses, that is the immeasurable riches of God's grace spelled out for us. Salvation comes completely from God's free grace giving us something we do not deserve, and it's applied because of our faith. So it's God's working through Jesus' death on the cross and the faith we have in that uh, God's working in Jesus' death and resurrection, granting us that grace. So God paid for our salvation with the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. And we can only receive it not by doing anything of our own, our own activities, our own strivings. Rather, we receive salvation through believing in His activity of death and resurrection. See, we didn't accomplish accomplish salvation because it can't be accomplished through any length of our own efforts. But that also means that we have no room to boast about having received salvation because it was the working of Jesus that brought salvation to us. The only legitimate boasting that can be done is for what Jesus did. Because in truth, we did nothing. The only things that we did in our lives earn us death and wrath. That's what we deserve. That's what we have earned, death and wrath, as he spoke about earlier. Those are the things that our efforts bought us. So we needed somebody else to step in and purchase eternal life on our behalf because we had insufficient funds for eternity. And so salvation was achieved because of what Jesus did. And once we believe, there is nothing that we can do to undo what He already did. For if we cannot do anything to earn salvation, 
we also cannot do anything to undo our salvation. If we could do something to undo our salvation, that would mean we have more power than Jesus. If Jesus gives us salvation, it can't be undone by us because we're not more powerful than Jesus. Once we have salvation, once we have faith in Jesus, that salvation, that, that, that grace is ours for all time. It can never be taken away. And so then, we receive salvation by grace through faith. And then what happens? What's the life of the believer look like? Well, that's what he talks about next. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk uh, in them. So believers are the workmanship of God, meaning we have received salvation, purchased by God, and then we are constantly worked on by God. We are His workmanship. He's working on us. He's working in us. He's making us better. He's working on us for our betterment. He's working on us through His Spirit, guiding us to do things according to His will. God work, God's, or good works, he says there, you see, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, good works don't result in salvation, but salvation should result in good works. Matthew 7, 16, you know, you will recognize them by their fruits. We can't earn our salvation by doing good things, but our salvation should be transforming us to do good things. God prepared certain things before creation for us to be a part of, which is what he said there. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. He prepared certain things for us to be a part of. He had a specific plan for us to walk according to, if only we would choose to follow him. So he's working within us through his spirit to lead us along the path that he designed for our lives to experience, to follow his plan. His will for us. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands. And so, like I said before, remember this church is made up of Gentiles and Jews. And so now here Paul points out the Gentiles in the church. But he doesn't just point them out to say, I'm just talking to you Gentiles. Um, He's addressing the Gentiles in a very public fashion because he wanted the Jewish believers to hear what he's saying because it applies to them too. You see, there was a time when the Jews, the circumcision he talks about there, uh, maybe even some of the Jews in the Ephesian church referred to Gentiles in a very despairing, uh, despairingly, uh, or, you know, uh, disparagingly uh, calling them the uncircumcised. Uh, is, you know, today that doesn't seem like that big a deal to use that phrase, but back then it was almost like a derogatory term. It was negative fashion uh, to tear them down, saying uh, that they were not counted worthy by God. It's what they were saying. Uh, and so he said, that's what the Jews called you, unworthy. But in reality, uh, God does not discount anyone. Everyone, human, is on equal footing with God. Sinners in need of a Savior. And so Paul's trying to remind the people of the time before they believed. When people who thought they had it spiritually made looked down on them as condemned. But notice that last phrase that Paul throws in there, which is made in the flesh by hands. So the circumcision Jews, in great pride, 
considered anyone not a Jew as less than in the eyes of God. But Paul, at the end of that verse, intentionally points out that the Jewish point of pride, circumcision, what they considered to be a symbol of God's favored status, was made in the flesh and not in the spirit. But eternal life, as Paul has been describing and will continue, eternal life is both physical and spiritual. And circumcision is merely spiritual, he says. So Paul is saying that even in trying to say they were better than the Gentiles, the Jews were pinning their hope of eternal salvation on something that was inadequate, something that was merely physical. Both Jews and Gentiles were in need of salvation. And Paul is reminding his readers of both Jews and Gentiles of their desperate need for Jesus. Look at verse 12. So again, remember, he, he's, he's kind of drawing attention to the Gentiles, but doing it in such a way that what he's saying also applies to the Jews. Um, you ever hear somebody point out and, and, and say something to one individual, but they're not just talking to them, they're talking to everyone around them too? You ever see somebody do that with their kids? Like you point out one kid, but it's really something all the kids were doing, you know, it's that kind of deal. Yeah, so he's, he's talking to the Gentiles, but it's something that applies to all of them. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, no, that's what we just read, verse 12. Uh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See, before they believed, there was a time in their life of these Gentile members uh, when they were completely separate from the love and the relationship and the grace and the mercy of Christ. At this time, they were also separate from the Jews to whom the gospel came first because Jesus was a Jew. So the Gentiles didn't have the gospel and they didn't have immediate access to the gospel. They were unfamiliar with the covenants that pointed to the promise of the Messiah and eternity in heaven. That's what he says there. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise. And as a result, these Gentiles had no hope of any kind for a lasting future. But it's also with great irony. You see those last words he says there, without God in the world. Great irony that Paul uses that phrase uh, because most first century Romans living in Ephesus most likely believed in a whole bunch of gods. But without the one true God, none of the belief they had in all those other gods meant anything. Uh, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in verse 12, Paul had said that the Gentiles were without hope. They were very far away from hope, the gospel. But then Jesus granted access to eternal life for all people through his death and resurrection. Jesus gave the opportunity for anyone to come near to God if they would simply believe. Now, this was thought by Jews, eternal life, to be reserved for them. And eternal life was thought by Gentiles really to be impossible. But Jesus turned what was thought to be impossible into an open invitation. You were brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Who, was made, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus doesn't just bring peace into the world. He is peace. His very presence in our lives is peace where there had only been turbulence previously. 
And look at what, how he phrases this. He has made us both, Gentiles and Jews, made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus provided peace between Gentiles and Jews. He made what had been two very separate groups into one unified body of believers in Christ. Where there had been, what he says there, a dividing wall of hostility, this impenetrable wall of hostility. And that word hostility means enmity and hatred of an enemy. Now, you know, there had been an underlying us versus them mentality that had been ingrained in the people for generations. And nothing had been able to overcome it. Only when both sides completely submitted to the will of Christ could such unity be received. But this is only in the first century, right? We don't have walls of hostility in our churches today, right? There's no problems like that today. There's no prejudice or anger or frustration at each other today. It's only back then. Only then. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It was just a type of person. I hate that type of person kind of attitude. And they've been taught it by their parents. And then they taught it to their kids and taught it to their grandkids. And it was just ingrained in them that these people aren't people. They, God hates them. They are terrible and awful, and you don't need to associate them whatsoever. I mean, Jews would not associate with Gentiles in any capacity. They wouldn't buy any food in the market that had been touched by a Gentile, that had been transported by a Gentile, that had fish that had been caught by a Gentile. That was tainted. They wouldn't do it. And Gentiles saw that and responded in kind and said, well, you don't like me, I don't like you. I ain't going near you. And so now what Paul's saying is, that in your church, Ephesians, God fixed all that. All that stuff that had been there, He did away with it. All that generational hatred, He took care of it. He, he, he allowed forgiveness. He allowed uh, a common purpose to work through it uh, uh, for the kingdom. By doing this, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So the law itself was a wall separating Gentiles and Jews. The Jews lived and died by the law, and Gentiles just disregarded the law altogether. And so they thought, we can never see eye to eye, because you don't like the law, you don't care about the law, and the law is all I live and breathe. But what Jesus' death and resurrection did is it abolished the law itself. Now, Paul's statement right there, even Jews who were believers, would have been hard, that would have been hard to digest, that phrase, that he abolished the law. He did away with it. He made it ineffective, that it was no longer necessary. It would have been, you know, it would have just graded on them the wrong way uh, just because it was so in them. And he's saying Jesus, his death and resurrection, abolished the law completely. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. One new man in the place of two by doing away with the law. Because the law had served its purpose. Uh, it pointed to a need for a Savior. And it's no longer needed because the Savior came. And so with the law thus removed, Jesus took two separate entities, Jews 
and Gentiles and made them one. You see, Gentiles didn't become Jews and Jews didn't become Gentiles. Both became Christians by grace through faith. And that union was only possible through the power of Jesus, who is himself peace. He is peace. And he provides that peace in among all that hostility that could have been there and was there. For this purpose, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, he started this whole chapter off talking about how sin killed us. And now he talks about how uh, the gospel kills the hostility that's between us. So you have both warring sides, Jews and Gentiles, both warring sides could be united, not against a common enemy, but in a common need and a common purpose. They were both reconciled to God. God provided the opportunity for all people to be reconciled to himself in one moment through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that word reconcile, it means to bring back to a state of harmony. To bring back to a state of harmony. Our relationship with God needed to be restored to a state of harmony and peace. And that could only come once our sin had been forgiven and removed. Sin was preventing our relationship from, with God. Because sin cannot come near the perfection of God. Because sin is imperfection. But that word reconcile there is very interesting. Uh, because it's only used three times in Scripture. Have you ever heard people say we need to be reconciled to each other? We need to have a ministry of reconciliation. That word is only used three times in Scripture, and each time it's only used in talking about humanity being reconciled to God. You see, if we are reconciled to God, and the person we're having great hostility is being reconciled to God, then we will naturally be reconciled to each other because we're being reconciled to God. If our focus is on God, it's like two entities. If if we are this far apart and God is here and we are coming closer to God, we're naturally going to be coming closer together as we grow closer to God. But if we're focused on the other person and not on God, then we're not going to be growing closer to God at all. We're just going to be building up that dividing wall even higher and more securely. So we need to be reconciled to God. And, and the thing about reconciliation is both parties need to be willing to be reconciled. God is always willing and desiring reconciliation with humanity. So all that we have to do is turn back to him. And then both groups of people, having been reconciled to God, will naturally be united to each other if we're being reconciled to God. So reconciliation, being reconciled to God, being brought to a state of harmony with God as our sins are forgiven and done away with. Uh, verse 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So the gospel of peace was, peace was presented to both Gentiles who were far off and Jews who were near. But look at what he says. He's talking about Jesus. He came and preached to you. Jesus himself, if you look at the gospels, almost exclusively preached to the Jews. So how is what Paul's saying there? accurate do you think do what well it, it, he says there in verse 17 Jesus came and preached peace to you the gospel but in the gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John 
Jesus really mainly preached to Gentiles or Jews. So how is it that what Paul says they're accurate? He came and preached peace both to Jews and to Gentiles. If in the Gospels we only see him preaching to Jews. They were together through the Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit I think that that is the case there. You know, his message was preached by his Holy Spirit speaking through the disciples to both Jews and Gentiles. Um, it is the words of Christ in the mouth of his apostles, in the mouth of other believers. And he preached through them that message of peace. You see, Jesus spoke directly with his physical mouth, uh, but he also spoke through his followers as they're willing to go and speak the gospel of peace to whomever they happen to find around them. So every believer, Jew and Gentile, or any parties previously hostile towards one another, we really have the same VIP level of access to the Father because of the same Spirit, God's Spirit, being present in the believer. He says there, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So both Jews and Gentiles, both groups of people who have great hostility for one another before they were Christians but should be reconciled to Christ now, have access to the same Father because of the same Spirit. Verses uh, 19, 20, and 21. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So he starts off that section talking about strangers and aliens um, be, having been alienated. Uh, he, the language that he used earlier of being strangers, having been alienated from the, what was it, the, the covenants of promise, uh, he says that no longer applies to people who now believe. The believers are together, the second half of that verse 19, believers are together citizens of the kingdom. Not only are they citizens, he says there, they are members of the household of God. That's really more intimate and familial language. It's saying that we are members of God's household. We are members of God's family. To be a member of somebody's household is to be counted among their family members. So come what may, all believers from every kind of background and situation, they are considered by God to be members of His family. And He treats and protects them as such. But similarly, we ought to treat one another in the exact same fashion in which God treats us. But do we do that very well? Do we end up treating other Christians with hostility sometimes? Maybe in response to them treating us with hostility. Is that the way we should do it? No. Right? But that's, that's not easy, is it, Jamie? Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Depends on who it is, right? <laughs> How much we got to bow up and get back, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but... The idea of being in the household of God, He treats us in a way that we do not deserve to be treated. He gives us access we should not have. And that's His grace and that's His mercy. And that's His forgiveness. And He's telling us, if you're a member of the family, 
You're supposed to be united with other members of the family. You got to treat them the same. You got to treat them the same. Same level of forgiveness you got, you got to give out. Same level of grace you got, you're supposed to give out. Same level of mercy you got, you're supposed to give out. That's why when Jesus said, he said, you need to forgive. And uh, Peter, trying to justify himself, said, okay, how many times do I really need to forgive to be okay and not have to worry about it anymore? That's when Jesus said 70 times 7, which means infinite number. Never stop forgiving. But hang on, Jesus. You don't know. This person, like, they do the same thing every Tuesday. And I get onto them every single time. And I'm getting tired of forgiving them. I've forgiven them eight times in a row, Jesus. They forgive them again. Because if we were really to break it down, how many times has Jesus forgiven me? <laughs> right? How many, or for how many things has he forgiven me? Yeah, just today. And I won't forgive somebody three times? Like, <laughs> you know? Uh, he says, yeah, and that's what he said. And that's, that's hard to wrap your brains around, you know. And we got, we're supposed to treat them as he treats us, with the same love, the same compassion. But being a member of God's family, like I said, he's going to treat us as a member of his family, but he's also going to protect us as a member of his family. When's the last time you reached out and protected somebody who was actively hostile towards you. Like if somebody said some kind of gossip about that person, did you shut that down or did you stoke it up a little bit? You stoked it up a little bit, come on. I've done that. We've all done that. Just instinctively because it's that hostility, that wall of hostility the enemy puts within us. It's just natural to do it. But... As Christians, we're not supposed to be based on what is natural. We're supposed to be based on the Spirit. And that fights our nature. And we've got to treat them in a different way. Because we're citizens of the kingdom. We're members of God's family. That, and, and we're supposed to be different from everybody else. It's not easy and it's not instantaneous. It's a process. I hope that I'll be better at it in a year than I am now, but I also hope that I'm better at it now than I was a year ago. Uh, making progress towards where he wants us to be. As citizens of his kingdom, as members of his family. But being members of his family, look at what he says there. That whole status, citizenship and members of the family, that status has been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Jesus himself being the cornerstone of the foundation. Of the, the, the apostles and prophets, the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of the prophets. Now, what's great here is he's not talking Old Testament prophets because he hadn't been talking Old Testament in any of this section here. He's talking about prophets who operate during the same period of time that he's writing this current, modern day prophets. You know, there are some people who believe that certain gifts of the Spirit ended at the time of the apostles. Things like healing and miracles and prophecy. Um, but nowhere in Scripture does it say those gifts ended. Scripture doesn't say they stopped. And so to assume they stopped is to say something that Scripture doesn't say. And Paul right here says, 
that the apostles, uh, the, the, the prophets still existed. They were still prophesying. He says, so that is the teaching has been the teaching of the apostles. The teaching of the prophets is Christ, who is the cornerstone, the very foundation upon which the whole structure there, verse 21, has been built. The whole structure has been joined together and grows into the holy temple of the Lord. So this strong foundation that we're building on has to be strong so that nothing will come crumbling down. And the church is what he's talking about. The church is built on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus. But the church is growing. It's growing unified in perfect holiness, displaying the Lord's presence for all to experience. So we're supposed to be growing, growing, growing better in the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, in the teaching about Jesus. We're supposed to be getting better in growth. And then he says, verse 22, last verse of the chapter. In him, Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you remember what he said earlier, we are God's workmanship. He's working on us. He's making us better. He's molding us. And so here he's saying, you are being built. You are in process. You're still under construction. We're not instantly unified into perfect holiness. It's a process of sanctification, a process of being made more like Jesus day by day. But we have to be willing to be made like Jesus and not fight against him constantly, not buck up against his trying to, to make us more like Jesus. As a church, the individuals, that's what he says in that verse, are being built together by the hands of Jesus into a structure designed by the divine mind. So as we are willing, the Spirit is forming each of us as individual parts to, a better, to, to be able to better fit together into the perfect dwelling place for the Lord. And so we must every day surrender our schedule, our plan, our will, our perceived rights in order to properly be formed as clay by the perfect potter being willing to be formed by Him. But that means we must spend time with Him to know how we should be formed. Not just assuming the best way to be formed, but we should listen to Him and be guided by Him to move in the direction He wants us to move. And as we as individuals are being moved, we as a group of believers are being moved in a unified purpose, in a unified goal to accomplish and build His kingdom, grow His kingdom. So that is chapter 2. Do you have any questions? We blew through. That's a lot. Do you have any questions about Ephesians chapter 2? Do you all see any comparison between this church in Ephesus and the church we have now? Like the dividing wall of hostility. and um, Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the moment I join, then it won't be so anymore. <laughs> I said the moment I join, it would stop being perfect. <laughs> the church without hostility is the one that has no people. <laughs> uh, that's right. There, there won't be any hostility once we get to heaven. 
So we look forward to that day. Well, next, next week we won't have Wednesday night activities here at the church because Thanksgiving is next week. Uh, but in two weeks we'll be back and we'll take a look here at Ephesians chapter 3. Let me pray for us. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the confidence we can have in knowing Christ. I thank You that You offer forgiveness and grace and mercy irregardless of what we do. Because it's not based on us. It's based on Jesus. God, I thank You for that. I thank You that Your salvation is secure for all time. I pray that we would treat each other like we are members of Your family and not just simply fellow humans occupying this same space, getting angry and frustrated and irritated at each other, but that we would choose peace. Because as Paul wrote there, Jesus is peace. So we would choose Jesus in those moments when our tempers rise and we feel like stoking the fire and we want to strike back and we want to hit back. God, I pray that we would in peace and in patience respond. Choosing peace, choosing patience, choosing Jesus. Displaying His love and forgiveness at every point, at every juncture. Treating other people, especially believers, in the exact same way you treated us. God, we thank you for that. In your name I pray, amen.